Hi, welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Since my research into last week's episode with Charles Elton about his book, Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and The Price of a Vision, I rewatched a lot of Vietnam feature films. And in this episode, I want to talk a little bit about what I kind of see as the three main American films about the Vietnam War, two of which came out in the new Hollywood era, which is a particular interest of mine on the podcast. Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, and I would put Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket in this batch of three major films about the Vietnam War. And of course, there are others. Uh, There's Platoon, of course, which is the only film, well, I'm not going to say the only film, but the only film of the kind of major American Vietnam feature films to have been made by a director who himself was a Vietnam veteran. And I've mentioned before on the podcast that I was really surprised to read Oliver Stone's recent memoir. One of the best sections of that memoir uh, was the section he wrote about his time in Vietnam. It was really, really almost uh, not Oliver Stone-esque. It is clear that this experience for him was such an emotional, psychological touchstone that the way he writes about it is so different than the bombast and severity with which he approaches his films and his screenplays. Uh, But Platoon, to me, uh, while it does contain that that authenticity of his own experience. I don't put it in the same category as as uh, Full Metal Jacket, The Deer Hunter, or Apocalypse Now. And I'm not really entirely sure why. I don't know if you put it in there. Artistically, I just don't feel it has the same filmmaking merit as those three films. Acting-wise, performance-wise, solid. Charlie Sheen is great. Defoe is great. Barringer is great. I guess it's just kind of a melodrama ultimately to me set in the Vietnam War, and although aspects of it are shockingly well done, great use of music, uh, ultimately it's kind of got more in common with a film like Casualties of War, sort of mainstream commercial Vietnam War films. So I'm not including it here, and maybe that'll be a point of contention for you. Uh, There are others as well. So I've had a guest on the pod a couple times uh, named Ted Jessup, and he... Ted Jessup has been after me for quite a while to have him on the pod to do his favorite uh, Vietnam feature film, which is Coming Home, uh, Hal Ashby's Coming Home. Charles Elton actually mentions that film very favorably in his episode. So I do need to rescreen that. But that's sort of different in that it's really focused on uh, the coming home portion of the Vietnam War experience, whereas these three films that I want to talk a little bit about today are specific to pre-Vietnam, going to Vietnam, coming back from Vietnam in varying degrees. And as I mentioned, Charles Elton did mention De Palma's Casualties of War, which as a completist, I tried to watch last night. It is based on a true story written by a writer named Daniel Lang in The New Yorker, uh, I think in 1969 or so, uh, which is a real event which occurred, which is the kidnapping, rape, and eventual murder of a Vietnamese woman 
by American soldiers and a subsequent trial and conviction of the soldiers involved. I tried to watch this last night. I had to turn it off after about 28 minutes. The acting was terrible. The characterizations were terrible. The dialogue was stilted and forced. It was just really not good. Michael J. Fox is okay. It's kind of one of his first real film performances, quote unquote, but he's kind of playing Michael J. Fox in that he's the earnest, means well guy. Uh, But the way they telegraph that is just ridiculous in the film. You know, he's like helping a Vietnamese farmer plow his rice field uh, when he's supposed to be on patrol. It's just, it's so cartoonish and ridiculous. And Sean Penn, who's a phenomenal actor mostly, is just, I don't know where this character is supposed to be from. Is he a redneck from the South? Is he an Italian from Brooklyn? I don't even know what this accent is that Sean Penn is doing in Casualties of War, but it's ridiculous. How are we going to count on you? You're a goddamn BC sympathizer. You could get killed real easy. Don't you know that? Somebody stumbles. They don't mean to shoot you. They're sorry. Friendly fucking casualty. I mean, a body bag's a body bag, right? Who's counting? Your mom is crying. Your daddy's pissing and moaning. So I had to turn that off. De Palma, uh, I don't know, just didn't work for me. So uh, that's just really not a good film. So that's not a major film about the war for the purposes of our discussion here. There's a German director named Michael Verhoeven. He's not related to Paul Verhoeven, who's a Dutch filmmaker. This is a German director. He actually made a film based on the same incident that De Palma's film is based on uh, in 1970, which would make it one of the very first feature films to fictionalize an aspect of the Vietnam War and the incident, which is known as the incident on Hill 192. This film is called OK, which is apparently a controversial film for its time. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen where I can see it. So I can't really comment on that as well. And then actually, I just got a uh, direct message from uh, Instagram account at deadmansshoes59, who sent me a notice that there's a film by... Ilya Kazan, that's actually the sequel to, I guess it's, he says, he describes it as a sequel to the Casualties of War film, but of course, coming out in 72, he he must mean sort of thematically it's a sequel. I guess this, he describes it as James Woods comes home from the war, uh, but some of his platoon pay him a visit after they discover he ratted them out. Now, that's sort of the device in Casualties of War is the Michael J. Fox character Uh, tells on the fellow platoon members who committed the atrocity. He said it's actually much better than casualties and highly recommended. And that's called The Visitors from 1972. So I will have to check that out as well. For completists, yes, there are essential documentaries about the Vietnam War. I'm not including those in our discussion here. I'm talking about fictional feature film treatments of the the war. There is Hearts and Minds, of course, which is on Criterion. It's a brilliant documentary of the era about the war. And of course, in a more contemporary sense and a long-lensed approach, we have Ken Burns' recent and masterful documentary series about the Vietnam War. If you haven't seen that, highly, highly recommend it. It's, I think, his best documentary series ever. Very moving, very detailed, very nuanced with history and experiences of all sides of the conflict. I think that's just a, it's the definitive statement so far on the war. So if you go down a little bit of a Vietnam War film rabbit hole and you haven't seen some of those documentaries, it's worth checking out at least Hearts and Minds and the Ken Burns thing. But as I said, 
for our purposes here today, I think the three major American Vietnam War films to me are The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, and Full Metal Jacket. I'm not putting those in a particular order. And I know that there's no best of these because really it's all subjective, but I think a rewatch of all of these films, as I recently did, was very revealing. And since we didn't get into this in the Chimino episode, I do want to talk a bit about, about these films and my reactions to them. And I know if you're like most people, and I put this question to you, you're going to probably say, oh, Apocalypse Now is the greatest movie about the Vietnam War, because putting aside whatever your personal film feelings are on the matter and whether you've actually screened all three films within the last week or so and can say without any equivocation that you know that to be true for yourself, that Apocalypse Now is the greatest movie about the Vietnam War, that's the conventional wisdom. I'm here to suggest that the conventional wisdom, as it so often is, is wrong. Uh, it's kind of the Vietnam film, for a, for a bunch of reasons that we'll talk about, that I think occupies the most mental real estate in the film world. It's a very storied and well-documented production with trouble and strife. There's somehow seven versions of the film since Francis keeps recutting it and re-releasing it, most recently just a year or two ago. It's got a documentary made by Coppola's wife, a contemporary documentary at the time it was filmed. So you get to see kind of the nuts and bolts. It's one of the most well-documented film shoots in history. Uh, and of course, it's got Brando looming as Brando does in any venture later in his career where he's actually taking things somewhat seriously, although we'll discuss that as well, trying to kind of recapture that magic that Coppola and Brando found in Godfather uh, 1 and 2, or Godfather 1, really. It's it's the Brando effect. I mean, it just, it's it was an event whenever he did something big. And as we'll see uh, here, I think that contributes to the legend, the myth of Apocalypse Now, even if as we start to interrogate its filmmaking and its overall kind of cohesion and sensibility, we may, we may find it lacking. I think if you put those films to people, the second film people tend to mention would be The Deer Hunter. I would say in popular imagination, this is probably the film most people would mention second after Apocalypse Now. And then the third would probably be Full Metal Jacket, although for some people I guess that would be Platoon because it came out, I believe, the year before Full Metal Jacket, which came out in 1987. I think Platoon came out in 86. There's an interesting side note to big Vietnam War films kind of upstaging each other in the sense that Coppola had been working on Apocalypse Now, you know, forever after making his first three films, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and The Conversation and had spent all the legendary time in the Philippines shooting what would become Apocalypse Now. And Michael Cimino, never obviously a quick filmmaker himself, had managed to shoot and, and edit and get The Deer Hunter released before Apocalypse Now even came out. So that's why you have that moment on stage and a freighted moment at the Oscars when Chimino wins Best Director and when uh, The Deer Hunter wins Best Picture and Francis Ford Coppola is on stage to uh, present Chimino his Best Director Oscar. 
And I think he says, you beat me, or he mentioned something to that effect. So similar thing kind of happened with Oliver Stone and with Stanley Kubrick, where Stone's film Platoon comes out, and then Kubrick's comes out in the next year. So I think for me, and you know, I put this up on Twitter, I put this on Instagram, I think these are the four films that most people mention. And I think most people polled will say that Apocalypse Now is their favorite or is the best. And then coming in second tends to be The Deer Hunter, and coming in third tends to be Full Metal Jacket. And Platoon usually comes in around fourth. Now, Full Metal and Platoon, you know, those films did come out in the mid-'80s. So in a way, I am fudging it here a little bit to include it with Apocalypse and Deer Hunter because Apocalypse and Deer Hunter are very much new Hollywood films. But I believe because of the presence of Kubrick, even though the film came out in 1987, it takes a place on the shelf with these other two very important cinematic films because the Kubrick pedigree, it's just, uh, it's the first film that Kubrick made after he made The Shining. There's really no director in the history of movies who ever made really more masterpieces than Stanley Kubrick. And it's really not even close if you look at it. Look at his IMDb page. Of the, I don't know, 12 or 13 films he made, 10 or 11, absolute stone-cold, classic, forever, vital, game-changing films. Each one totally different from, its, from each other, distinct in genre. It's, it's just, it's astounding what he did. It's astounding the work he put into what he did. You know, to me, he's, he's got to be the greatest artistic cinematic director of all time. And every film that he ever made wasn't just a film that's come out. Uh, more so than any of these other films. You know, a Kubrick film was an artistic event. It was a pop culture event. It crossed over. You know, if you remember going to the movies and when it was a big deal to have a big film released in the cinema, you know, I can remember. It was a spectacle to have uh, even Eyes Wide Shut when that came out, his last film. That was a big deal. Cinemas were packed in New York City. There was an event. Uh, it was an event when Full Metal Jacket came out. Uh, it was a bigger event in a way than when Platoon came out. It's a bigger event than even when some of these other films came out, because as we'll discuss, the release of The Deer Hunter and the release of Apocalypse Now were, were handled differently than film releases were handled once we get into the 80s. So for me, Kubrick uh, has made one of the most important and artistic films about the Vietnam War, even though I think it's fair to say it, it does pale somewhat in comparison to Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter. So let's start there uh, with a little bit of a discussion about Full Metal Jacket. So in the magazine American Cinematographer at the time of the film's release, a writer named Ron Majid said it best. I'm going to quote from him, quote, uh, now on the 30th anniversary of previous Kubrick film, Paths of Glory, Kubrick has presented us with what is arguably his most cynically despairing, grim, and disturbing film ever, Full Metal Jacket. The common man may still be a pawn of the government's war machine, but this time around, the price of obedience isn't his life, although that may become forfeit, but his humanity. The title refers to a type of bullet commonly used in the Vietnam War, but it might also reflect the icy, documentary-like detachment that characterizes the film's sardonic tone. Well said, Ron Majid. Now, Kubrick 
given what I just talked with Charles Elton about with Chimino, has his own kind of interesting and sometimes tortured relationship with the writers that he always collaborated on with his films. Uh, with Full Metal Jacket, he's working with uh, Michael Herr, who wrote a book called Dispatches. And there's another author that he also collaborated with whose name I can't recall right now. And I believe they had a bit of a dispute after the film came out, as tends to happen sometimes. But Kubrick was very much, uh, very much someone who, you know, you can read this from cinematographers, you can read it from uh, production designers, special effects people. And you can certainly hear about it from writers because they're writers. So guess what? They write about their experiences. You know, he is a sponge. He will suck you dry. He demands the best. He has something in mind, which he's not necessarily always going to be able to communicate to you or pointedly that he doesn't want to communicate to you because he's after you to do a certain part of the heavy lifting so that he can then use your materials in the way he knows he needs to in order to accomplish what he's setting out to accomplish. And that doesn't always go smoothly for everyone who, you know, maybe rightfully feel strongly about their own work or their own book, or who don't maybe understand what working for Kubrick is like. I think Michael Hurd worked for Kubrick a couple times, so I think he was pretty well versed in how it all went. But it's just interesting compared to the Chimino discussion because Chimino did on The Deer Hunter what he would go on to do many times, you know, which is he very clearly utilized the services of a writer. And you can, you can look in any number of books that I've read that have the actual contract for Derek Washburn, who was hired by EMI, the producing studio for The Deer Hunter, uh, for a term of a certain number of weeks to work on the screenplay for what became The Deer Hunter. Now, no one is going to sit here and tell you that The Deer Hunter is not the work from the mind wholly of Michael Cimino, because it is. But it's so obviously the work of Michael Cimino that it begs the question why Michael Cimino himself kind of over and over again felt the need continually to shortchange or try to shortchange writers from credit, which he did. Now, in the case of The Deer Hunter, he would lose an arbitration process and Derek Washburn's name and the names of a couple of other people who had written an original script, which only involved a Russian roulette scene in a completely different screenplay that was tonally completely different from The Deer Hunter. It was the only thing that Chimino kept and that Derek Washburn kept when they finally sat down together to bang The Deer Hunter into shape. So anyway, Kubrick, if you read about the production of many of the films of Stanley Kubrick. There's always some of this going on. It happened in 2001. Uh, you know, Stephen King, Stephen King and Kubrick were not collaborators. Uh, but of course, Stephen King has always to this day had a problem with The Shining, which is the greatest horror movie ever made. Uh, it will never be equaled. And it's not faithful to the book in a way that rankles Stephen King. But is it faithful to the entire ethos of the Stephen King oeuvre without being letter perfect, that's, I think, also something that speaks for itself. So anyway, Full Metal Jacket is just very different than these other two films. Now, and that's not to say that as much time was not spent and labored over it because Kubrick, every bit as much as Cimino and Coppola, you know, really worked long, long pre-production periods to get everything lined up just exactly so. 
The look of the film is very different from the other two. It's purposely a very desaturated, grainy documentary look to the way the film was exposed and lit and treated. Yes, there were a lot of takes, something perhaps common to all three of these directors. Kubrick was pretty well known for hovering around the 10 to 15 take zone, but maybe sometimes doing 20 or 30 as required. There's an interesting bite from the director of photography, Doug Milsom, on this aspect of working with Stanley Kubrick, which I just want to take a moment to read here because trying to keep this episode short, oftentimes other people say things much more succinctly than I can. He says, quote, Stanley has always done many, many takes, but in fact, the many takes are not just repetitions of the same thing. They are often building upon a theme or an idea that can mature and develop into something quite extraordinary. The whole structure of the scene can actually change during the operation of filming it. Also, Stanley gets a lot more out of his actors after he works with them a lot longer. It's especially valuable in bringing out something in actors who may not be exactly up to the part, but Stanley works on them jolly hard until they produce the goods. That's why he's so good with actors. In the end, he'll rehearse and rehearse them until they're word perfect. And when they've got the words perfect, then the rest has to happen. Then they have to act. The large number of takes are used mainly to get something out of the actors that they're not willing to provide right away. Of course, it's demanding on the crew as well, but it's a lot harder for the actors than it is for us. Once you've done an eight or 10 minute scene a number of times after take 30 or 35, you're really into it. So Kubrick obviously is after something, and most of what he's after is all set up with his creative team through this incredibly laborious pre-production process where they are figuring out the script, figuring out the locations, figuring out the casting, and the tone and the look of the film, the, the music, the way the film is going to be exposed, the, the approach to lighting, which is so different from each of his films. And unlike the other two films that we're talking about, Full Metal Jacket was shot entirely in England, entirely in one location, which is remarkable when you consider the Vietnam scenes that comprise the second half of the film. I think Full Metal Jacket is also a really interesting combination of, like I said, this kind of documentary uh, realism and being very stylized at the same time. The stylization, I think, comes from the use of Steadicam, uh, the way it's the way it's so rigorously structured, and it uses the structure of 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 the camp environment, the barracks scenes themselves, the boot camp. That's the term I was looking for. You know, it uses the regimented nature of the uh, the 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 beds and the footlockers and the soldiers. It uses all that in a very stylized way to make its points, and it also utilizes off-camera, a production design, uh, or I should say more a, 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 an approach to the cinematography that allows Kubrick to shoot that way. So for example, in the boot camp scenes inside the barracks, there are no lights set up inside the barracks themselves. Not that you would see them in the finished product, but of course in many feature films, just outside what you can see on the screen, there's an innumerable amount of lighting stands and lights and filmmaking equipment. Not so on Full Metal Jacket. In these barrack scenes, all of the lighting equipment was outside the wall so that the light was made to appear to be coming through the windows in the barracks. And the overhead lights that you can see in the barrack scene were 
you know, supposed to just be these industrial sort of fluorescent feeling lights, but those were replaced with actual kind of movie lighting type lights that also provided a working version of what they were looking for. So that allowed Kubrick to film in a 360 degree fashion around the barracks. And that is a, a stylistic choice that paired with the approach to the use of the film stock and the types of lighting that they were doing, I think allowed him to create this very unique combination of both a documentary feel and this very stylized kind of Kubrick feel. And that's what makes that a very unique and interesting uh, film. There's also, I read, some really interesting uh, Kubrick kind of inventions. Like one thing in this, this American Cinematographer article is that Kubrick owned most of his equipment, <laughs> unlike any of these other directors, like lenses, cameras, dollies, cranes. He owned this stuff. Like he wanted to have it, and he if he found something that worked, it's kind of like he's a craftsman and these were his tools. So it's kind of funny, I guess, everybody else, you'd think just rents what they need or, you know, we're going to shoot this film on this camera. But Kubrick, there's a lot of anecdotes of him falling in love with certain lenses, certain cameras, and he wants to buy it, he wants to own it. So a couple of the vehicles that they used to achieve shots on Full Metal Jacket were these kind of jury-rigged things that uh, he would put together with his cinematographer. There was a Citroën, like a French car, that they, I, I don't know if they cut the top off it, but that became sort of a rolling, like a rolling dolly that they that they would use. They also had a truck that they kept the cab on and they cut the back part of the truck off and that became something that they could that they could drive through certain scenes um, and capture some of the moving shots as the platoon was undergoing basic training and running outside and doing all the chanting and things of that sort. So there's some really kind of low-budget stuff going on in an otherwise pretty big, uh, big-budget film. Also, the cinematography in... Full Metal Jacket is very, it's detached from what it's shooting. It's kind of clinical. It's not, uh, I don't know, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is if you think about the movies of Michael Mann that I love, like The Insider or Heat or Collateral or Miami Vice, the cameras there are often feel kind of, they're perched over the shoulder. You know, they're almost claustrophobically, um, infiltrating the space of our protagonists and characters, you feel like a fly on the wall. You feel like you're seeing something you're not supposed to be seeing. But in Full Metal Jacket, you have this kind of very clinical cold, again, uh, as Ron Majid said, Full Metal Jacket as a name, the, the clinical nature, the cold nature, the unhuman, unfeeling nature of that. The, the, the positioning of the camera, the way the camera moves, it all feels really detached. It doesn't have an emotional comment on what it's observing, which is very different to me than Coppola and Chimino and the way they move the camera. And again, to Ron Majid's point about uh, how dark the film is, you know, in an emotional sense, the very last scene of Full Metal Jacket, after this platoon has killed a female sniper who was uh, shooting and wounding many members of the platoon. Uh, they march through, uh, to quote again, as they march through the burning hell they've made, singing a perverse perverse rendition of the Mickey Mouse Club song. The image goes dark and the Rolling Stones beg us to paint it black. And that's how the film ends. And my son. 
So yes, it is bone dry and bone dark. Um, when most people think of Full Metal Jacket, I think they really think of the first half of the film, which is the boot camp stuff, with Arlie Ermey as the drill instructor, uh, Matthew Modine as Joker, and all the other great actors that portray this platoon. Um, and upon rewatch, I, I liked it a lot more than I sort of thought I would. I mean, of course, seen it several times, but I watched it back kind of in the high school days when we were just watching it for kind of a, a, a sick appreciation for its goriness um, or kind of how dark and morbid it was. But this is the first time I'd watched it in a number of years, uh, kind of to try and appreciate it as a piece of filmmaking. And it has a real presence. It has a malevolence almost. It's totally different from the other two films in structure and execution. It's sparse. It's minimalist. Um, you know, and it's intense. I mean, the the training scenes with Arlie Ermey are such a great indication of what is always so hard to pin down with Kubrick, which is his morbid sense of humor, which a lot of people miss. It's really funny, but even at the same time, it's so brutally dehumanizing what's happening to these to these young men that to laugh is to be complicit. And is that part of what Kubrick is after? That's kind of a fascinating experience as you go through. Uh, now, Arlie Ermey himself was only a consultant on the film originally, and then it kind of became apparent to everyone that he should perform the role. He was a drill instructor, uh, and he is amazing. He's incredible. Um, and then, of course, the film, uh, that section is just a marvel. You know, it's it's so spare, it has such control, and it just quietly builds and builds and builds and obviously culminates um, with the murder and suicide in the bathroom, Vincent D'Onofrio, unbelievable, chilling. Um, and I think, you know, Kubrick's points about nations and armies and grunts and COs, they still remain as rapier sharp as ever. And to me, this is a film that's about what happens when you try to squeeze out and kill individuality and personality in pursuit of the creation of a killing machine. But then you put that machine in a situation where frequently they have to act as individuals and as a collective with predictably horrible results since you squeezed out all of the individual thinking and idiosyncratic personality stuff that actually would save their lives in these extreme situations you put them into. And so I think in this way, Kubrick was able to really use what, even though he's, you know, he's an American from Brooklyn, but I think of him as a decisively British filmmaker. He has a decisively British sense of humor. He made his films in the UK and he used that to great effect here. I think this film has something most in common with scenes like the Duval scenes in Apocalypse Now which I think, if I think about it, that's kind of the one place in Apocalypse Now where I think Coppola's sense of humor is kind of allowed to 
get off the leash a little bit and take over the narrative. Uh, and to me, that's one of the best parts of that film, uh, even as though it also kind of points out to one of what I think is Apocalypse's flaws, but we'll talk about that. But anyway, it's astounding that Kubrick was able to pull off the second half of the film in in Britain, just 30 miles outside of London, I believe. Uh, as we talk about in the, in the Chimino episode, it was a disused gas works. And as such, uh, Coppola and his team were allowed to bl- actually blow up buildings and uh, have fires and have things on fire. And so unlike the other two films, which go for the more common jungle approach to depicting Vietnam battle locations, you know, Kubrick and his team making do with what they had, they went for an urban uh, war environment, of which, of course, there were, you know, urban war environments taking place uh, in Vietnam. It's actually kind of shockingly akin to some of the images you can see now uh, with Russia invading Ukraine and some of the uh, city scenes of destruction. You have that that look of exploded buildings is just impossible to set design and create and, and enable to being able to blow up actual <laughs> buildings and create a, a shockingly realistic uh, depiction of urban warfare destruction, he's able to kind of give us this hellish war landscape in a way that's very different from the other two films. And the the way that those other two filmmakers tried to solve those problems we'll talk about. But Kubrick's film, I think, deserves more credit for how it approached handling being in country in Vietnam and creating a sense of peril and this hellish landscape uh, in a manner that was utterly convincing and and really unique to this film in, in relation to a lot of other fictional Vietnam films. So I thought that was pretty well done. If you want to talk about flaws of the film, you know, the characterizations, the, the actors are can feel as much a part of the scenery as furniture or the screenplay sometimes. You know, they don't always become fully formed, fully realized characters because they are in service to Kubrick's vision and what he's trying to say. And so while we have really good actors like Arliss Howard and Matthew Modine and Vincent D'Onofrio and and terrible and horrible things happen to them and we are shocked by those things as they occur, it has that same clinical detachment from itself. And that's a criticism often of some of the Kubrick films, and I think some of the better Kubrick films surmount that because of the sheer power of uh, the performances. In this movie, we don't really have sheer powerful performances that become human in the way that they do in certainly The Deer Hunter and maybe arguably in Apocalypse Now or even in Platoon for that matter. So I think that's a flaw of Full Metal Jacket. Now, Apocalypse Now I want to talk about next. This is the end, beautiful friend. In a sense, in some ways, it's the least impressively wholly unique creative thing out of these three films. And and I know that can maybe sounds a little crazy on the face of it, because I think when we think of Apocalypse Now, we think of this wildly inventive, surrealist tone poem that uniquely captures the horrors of war while not necessarily being a linear story about 
uh, the types of characters we're used to seeing in war films. And, and I think there's a part of that that is true. But, you know, uncharitably, you could say, yeah, he took Heart of Darkness and imposed that on a Vietnam story. And uh, similar to Kubrick, he used characters more so than he brought to life fully formed characters. You know, who's the emotional center of Apocalypse Now for you? Is it Martin Sheen? Is it Marlon Brando? In some ways, the Brando character, Colonel Kurtz, is the most fully layered, laid out character throughout the course of the film because we spend a tremendous amount of time talking about him before he ever arrives in the film. We can see these really compelling photos I found of the young Brando, you know, military career, the, the Kurtz military career stuff I thought was really compelling. And you're, you're laying out this fascinating person who did things that no one had done before and accepted challenges that rose above military ambition. And in doing so, you know, painted himself to be better than his masters, better than his commanders. He was after something purer. He was after a personal challenge. He stood for something. Um, and all that's great. And all the documentation and the paperwork and the letters that we briefly glimpse that Martin Sheen's character is leafing through on the boat. You know, to me, that's the most interesting character in the movie. And he only shows up in the last 20 minutes of the movie. And when he does show up, frankly, I'm going to say it's a bit disappointing as a performance and a characterization. And I think it relies on some actorly, actorly tricks that Brando relied upon quite a bit throughout his career and certainly later in his career. Uh, we'll talk about more about that in a minute. So for me, Kurtz is the most interesting character in the movie and you don't get to see him until the last part of the movie. And then when you do, I'm not sure it really lives up to it. Uh, meanwhile, though, we do spend plenty of enjoyable time with plenty of other enjoyable characters. And that is a strength of the film. Um, but like all of these films, to one degree or another, you know, Kubrick's film really has the fewest um, sort of supposedly Vietnamese characters in it, aside from some of the prostitution scenes, uh, which in pop culture, <laughs> I was just laughing to be reminded like, oh yeah, that's where Two Live Crew got me so horny, me love you long time. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all hey, baby. over you. You got girlfriend, Vietnam? Not just this minute. Yeah. Well, baby, me so horny. Just to think how weird it is for a second that it's a Stanley Kubrick film that contributed that and that Two Live Crew has a huge, you know, international number one hit with a film that samples the dialogue from a Stanley Kubrick uh, anti-war Vietnam film. Just contemplate how bizarre that is for a moment. How Kubrickian. So all of these movies do open themselves up to criticism for not portraying the other side, the Vietnamese people, uh, as humanly as they portray their uh, American characters. Although, I mean, to the point of the filmmakers, I think war is hell. The people that participate in war are made to go through hell. And some of these filmmakers are not putting the most fully three-dimensional American characters on screen either. Now, 
in Apocalypse Now, uh, you, you could say, it, it, I think nowadays we look a lot differently at this and maybe rightfully so. You know, it's in Coppola's film that you really have these natives who are body painted, have like bones in their nose. I mean, it's really can smack of that kind of oversimplification of native cultures. It's, it's not really making its point with any subtlety, you know, and I'm not sure that he's trying to do that, but it is a criticism I think you can make of Apocalypse Now, maybe more so even than the other films. It's not a subtle film, you know, it's making its points with Huey helicopters and Wagner and The Doors, and Dennis Hopper. How subtle is Dennis Hopper? Could we uh, talk to Colonel Kurtz? Hey, man, you don't, uh, you don't talk to the Colonel. Uh, um, well, well, you listen to him. Uh, the man's enlarged my mind. Uh, uh, he's a poet, warrior, in the, in the classic sense. Uh, I mean, sometimes he'll, uh, well, you say hello to him, right? And uh, he'll just walk right by you, and uh, he won't even notice you. And then some, suddenly he'll grab you, and he'll, he'll throw you in a corner, and he'll say, do you know that if is the middle word in life? If you can keep your head when all about you're losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you. I mean, I'm no, I, I can't, I'm a little man. I'm a little man. He's, he's a great man. Uh, uh, I should have been a pair of ragged claws uh, scuttling across floors of silent seas. I mean... Stay uh, with the boat. Uh, hey, don't go any, hey, don't go without me, okay? <laughs> I want to get a picture. They're great, you know? You love them when you see them. They're great moments. But kind of ironically for a film that really is about you know, the imposition of war on a native culture. In a way, that's kind of exactly what the movie does. That's what the whole approach to the movie does, you know. So I guess to indicate that on screen, you have to kind of do it. Maybe that's the catch-22. I'm thinking of the Playboy scene. You know, it's so, it's the obscenity of this this insane show being staged in the jungle and the lights and the music and the sex and the fighting and the helicopters. It's just so over the top. And for me, as a linear piece of filmmaking and story, I just, when I rewatched it, and I'm, and I also, you know, I pointedly rewatched the original because all of these subsequent versions, I don't think have improved or are necessary uh, for Apocalypse Now. Um, I'm not really sure, you know, Coppola, I know, you know, really loved the, uh, the French villa scene where, the soldiers take this long, discursive, conversational detour into a dinner in a ruined, you know, French mansion in the jungle, um, which is not in the original theatrical cut. And I think the film is better without it. Um, and doesn't film doesn't really need another set of white people to explain what it's trying to do. So to me, these subsequent versions are not improving this film. Um, it is surreal. It is a tone poem. It is a collection of scenes. Uh, to me, though, I don't find that as ultimately compelling as I do the human story in something like The Deer Hunter. And I'm also starting to wonder as I watch more and more films, if there isn't a little bit of trickeration there in that, you know, you can get away with the film kind of ultimately really being about nothing because it could seem to be about anything. And I think Brando's performance is an example of that. Yes, Coppola had a vision. He stalked it down in the jungle. He uh, he famously, you know, had this insane production. But also, let's remember, unlike unlike the Deer Hunter, and unlike certainly Heaven's Gate for Chimino, where he really was oppressed by his studio partners in interesting and convoluted ways. 
both very in very different ways on both of Chimino's two big films, The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate. On The Deer Hunter, you know, he had Michael Dealey and Barry Spikings and EMI kind of breathing down his neck ineffectively. Uh, but he was in pursuit of something that he knew he needed to get, and he was right. You know, he was right. Um, now, perhaps in context, you know, they were right to be freaked out at the concept of a 50-minute wedding scene uh, to start a film. You know, perhaps you can understand studio executives at the time uh, being well within their rights to think that was overindulgent or ludicrous. And it's probably very much the kind of thing that you just simply had to see in its finished product on screen and in relation to the other things that take place in the film in order to really understand that it was going to work. But let's remember, Michael Cimino is the person who knew that was going to work before anybody else, and he was right. With Apocalypse Now, yes, we get it. Kurtz, he's the dark heart of America writ large. But what's different is Coppola is in total control. He doesn't have a studio. He is the studio. He's the producer. Now, just remember, he is the Oscar-lauded director at this point in time. He is not someone who, who like Michael Cimino, has only made one other film. Uh, I believe each of the three films Coppola had made to date had all been nominated for Best Picture. So he's in control. It's his production. And he says this in many interviews and production notes. So this sense that it's out of control, well, it's kind of out of control from yourself because you're in charge. No one is, uh, uh, you know, you don't have a studio that's refusing to pay money for the things that you're trying to do. Um, you set this in motion and any excess and lack of uh, ability to deliver is really on Coppola himself. He's the one who undertook this venture. So I think that's got to be noted as well. And it's a very different film because, yes, it's unrealistic, right? Uh, it's symbolic. I think of like the, the tiger jumping out of the jungle scene. Charles Elton says in my Chimino episode, you know, Kurtz is not a real person that you're going to meet in Apocalypse Now, and it's true, right? Although there is a real person that you could meet in the way Kurtz is laid out in the paperwork that Sheen's character is looking at, as I mentioned, but the Kurtz that we do meet, he's a, a, such a filmic construct, and it's a filmic construct that's using Brando. It's using our sense of Brando to create the character. And that's very different. Uh, and, and Coppola told you know, his cinematographer uh, that he didn't want to do things Really, he said, quote, Vittorio, I don't want to do something realistic. I want to create a big show, something that's magnificent to see. Everywhere Americans go, they make a great show of things, and I want to create a conflict between beauty and horror. So he's after something very different than the other two filmmakers. In a way, it has more, more in common with Kubrick in that he's trying to pursue a vision of something, and he's trying to portray the unportrayable, and he's trying to do so through these broken bits of a mirror that tell different parts of a story and not necessarily linearly. And I'm all for that, to be honest with you. But the sacrifice you make is, um, is the sacrifice you make. Now, also, I don't know why, and I'd have to delve further into the making of materials to learn more about this, but a lot of the special effects in Coppola's film are just they read so cheaply on screen, like the fireworks that they are. You know, I think of the scene when the boat comes under ambush from the riverbank, and it's clearly red Roman candle fire. You know, it's not tracer bullets of a sort used 
in some of the other films. So that realism, which again, maybe that's a choice. You know, as I said in the Chimino episode with Charles Elton, you know, Francis is experimenting around the same time with films like One from the Heart, really stylized, really, uh, really purposefully theatrical. And this is part of maybe what he's going for uh, in this film. But there is kind of also this pseudo-realism going on. And those two things are kind of in conflict with each other for me. So maybe that's the conflict that Francis was talking to his cinematographer Vittorio about the conflict between beauty and horror. Maybe that means it's the conflict between kind of theatrical stylization and naturalism. I'm not sure. I guess I might just be more of a naturalist guy. Like I just like closely hued characters portrayed by indelible actors. And the Martin Sheen character for me never is a fully formed person. The Duval character, as amusing as he is in his one or two scenes, is also not a realistic person. Um, and Brando isn't when we meet Brando. Now, Brando, you know, it's not The Godfather, put it that way. You know, The Godfather is a movie where nobody wanted Brando. He was considered washed up. He was considered uninsurable. No studio would bank him. And everyone had to fight to get him into The Godfather. And of course, he, for whatever mercurial reason, decided to rise to the occasion. I mean, Brando, because I have a theory that's typically probably half-baked, but I'm going to lay it out here. You know, Brando famously, and towards the end of his life, he came to really, really despise acting and movie making. He despised the industry. He despised himself. He despised the money that he had to work to earn. He hated it. And I think part of the reason that he hated it was not only that he was driven insane through fame and excess, which I believe he was, if you read about him, and I've read several books about Brando. It's one of the ugliest stories you can read about in Hollywood, to be honest with you. Uh, if you love the movies, don't read the biographies, is my suggestion, because if you want a warts and all picture, you will not come away thinking that the price paid is worth a handful of movies. That's what we're talking about. They're just a bunch of movies. You can go on and on. Oh, he changed acting forever. He did this. Sure. Okay. Uh, I'm sure that the people's lives who were lost through proximity to him, of which there are many, probably wouldn't feel that that trade-off is equal. However, part of the reason I think Brando came to despise himself and his role in the industry and the industry itself and came to make a mockery of it whenever he was <laughs> enabled to do so on a movie set was because he knew he wasn't always turning in these incredible, amazingly learned and uh, practiced performances. He's completely winging it, right? Now, here are some techniques I know Brando used. You can see this in stills from The Godfather. There's a funny scene where I think it's uh, Duval is wearing, he's wearing a cue card <laughs> because obviously you won't see the Duval character, but all of Brando's lines as Don Corleone are on this cue card that Tom Hagen is wearing. And, you know, what's the line between I'm lazy and I'm not going to learn my part and what Brando would say, which is that, in, that allows me to be real. It allows me to be natural because that's the way people speak. They don't know what they're going to say before they say it. And if I'm in a scene and I'm looking at my lines and that's the first time I'm encountering the lines, I'm going to deliver them in a certain way, which is going to work for my character. Now, that's what he says. 
And you can't really argue with the results in The Godfather because he is amazing and magnetic and incredible in his scenes. And you hear a lot about actors, Brando and others, who use earpieces now. The version of that today is they use earpieces and they have their lines fed to them. I know of one famous actor of whom it's rumored he does this because he can't read, literally can't read. There are other actors that do it out of sheer laziness. And again, a addled brain due to decadence and laziness combined. Uh, But maybe there's something to this concept of a kind of meta approach to acting where you're going to be fed the line and in processing it through your actor brain in real time, you're going to deliver something real. I don't know. But I think it's a very thin line there between that and just completely being full of shit and phoning it in. And I have to say, I think in Apocalypse Now, I would lean a little bit towards the latter than the former. You know, you can read and you can see and you can hear plenty about how Brando showed up unprepared, completely out of shape, uh, totally different than what was discussed and agreed upon for the character and that they had to adapt. And I'm not sure how much of this dialogue that he's portraying in the movie is just made up completely on the spot because that's basically the best they could get. Where are you from, Willard? I'm from Ohio, sir. (coughs) Were you born there? Yes, sir. Whereabouts? Toledo, sir. How far are you from the river? The Ohio River, sir? Uh-huh. About 200 miles. I went down that river once when I was a kid. There's a place in the river I can't remember. Must have been a gardenia plantation or a flower plantation at one time. It's all wild and overgrown now, but for about about five miles, you'd think that heaven just fell on the earth in the form of gardenias. Is it the best of Brando? I don't think so. You know, does it really fit in with everything that the film has built up to at that point? It does, but it's not as great a performance as Brando gives in The Godfather. It's not a fully realized performance. And again, from the clues that we were presented throughout the film and the file, I'm way more interested in the Kurtz of that than, you know, the Kurtz we're presented with. Again, it can feel a little hollow. It can feel a bit like a house of cards. And if you start to shake it a little bit too much, it might just all fall apart. And it's maybe relying a little bit on theatrical tricks, uh, like a Dennis Hopper being so Dennis Hoppery and sort of distracting your eye a little bit in the Kurtz sequence from maybe some of the other implausibilities that are going on. 
okay, we get that Kurtz probably wants Sheen's character to kill him, but is it really believable that, you know, after setting up this entire jungle encampment and not apparently communicating with any of the thousands of people who apparently are willing to kill for for him, uh, that he's just allowed to kind of camp out outside and wait for the opportune moment to go in there and just hack the guy to death? Like, I don't know. But all of that stuff together, uh, to me, it, it left me this time a little less impressed with Apocalypse Now than I thought I was supposed to be. So I would encourage you to watch it again and let me know what you think. Is it a masterpiece? Does it say something about the war in a way these other more linear films can't that I'm missing this time around? That's entirely possible. Moving on to The Deer Hunter, which, if it's not clear to you already, is clearly my personal favorite of these films by a long shot. And I think it's because of everything I just said about those other two films. Uh, to me, The Deer Hunter is a human film about real characters brought to life by incredible actors, put in fascinating locations that are so disparate from each other, the locations, yet they somehow work as a whole. Um, the look of the first part of the film, the, the steel mill scenes, the town scenes, the wedding, those are all shot completely differently than something like the scenes in Full Metal Jacket. In this case, we have this widescreen Panavision frame, which is, which is shot with a type of lens called an anamorphic lens, which gives you this incredible clarity and depth of field, and it gives you the ability to fill the frame with so much information. And Chimino films in a way that all of these frames, I mean, when you go back and watch The Deer Hunter, look at the detail in Mike and Nick's trailer. Look at the detail in the bar. Look at the detail in the wedding scenes. I mean, everywhere your eye looks, there is a completely fully realized, set-dressed, and wholly fictionally created reality. And, and that's extraordinary. And I think it's all in service of character and place and location. So the deer hunter pre-war scenes are really crisp and, and filled with detail. The production design is a lot more realistic. And this is all in Chimino's head, right? This is all stuff he's able to communicate to his production designers and his cinematographer and, and to his cast. And uh, this gorgeous church and the wedding scene, you know, unlike, unlike Kubrick in Full Metal Jacket, Vilmos Zygmunt, the cinematographer, his, he and his crew spent an entire day just rigging lights in that church for the wedding scene, hiding them as they had to behind pillars and under tables and behind pews and doing everything they had to do to bring that to light uh, as they wanted to. Vilmos Zygmunt, quote, since the deer hunter relies very heavily on dramatics and character development, we realized from the beginning that we would have to give the actors lots of time and not spend it all in lighting. 
So that right there is one of the most telling bites for me about why The Deer Hunter works for me the most out of all of these films, because it's a film about the characters and the character development, and that's front and center. Now, for the war scenes, um, Chimino and Vilmos did use a similar process to Kubrick. They went for that more grainy kind of documentary feel. So there's a dis- the, there's a disparity in the filmmaking, which I like, within uh, The Deer Hunter as well. I think that the different locations that they used, uh, it is a little silly when you know Pennsylvania. I know Pennsylvania. When they go deer hunting, <laughs> there are no mountains, snow-capped mountains with peaks like that in Pennsylvania. Those were all shot in Washington State all the way across the country. Um, Meryl Streep has a thing in a, in a great book about the making of the deer hunter called one shot, the making of the deer hunter. Um, she says, you know, she has she has people who who live in that part of the, the country in Pennsylvania, and she thought it was completely ludicrous that they were in these locations for the deer hunting scenes because she's like, no one's going to buy that. There's no place in Pennsylvania that looks like that. But in the end, it works. You know, it works for that movie magic reason. It works because Vilmos Zygmunt figured out how to make it work with his cinematography and uh, Peter Jenner, the editor, figured out how to make it work. And Chimino and the actress had to make it work. So the filmmaking, the approach to the filmmaking, just terms in a technical sense, I think really works for the story here. But it's the humanity of the deer hunter. It's the fact that we know and come to love and care about Nick, Stosh, Mike, Axel, John, Linda. It's a human story. None of these other films are human stories. Now, Platoon, probably you could argue, comes the close to being a human story, even more so than Apocalypse Now and more so than Full Metal Jacket. But as I said, given the commercial nature of it, I don't think it rises to the level of art that these other three films do. Also, the legacy of The Deer Hunter is amazing. I didn't know this until doing this research, that the only reason we have a Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., is because of the deer hunter. And that's because there is a man, a veteran, named Jan Scruggs, who served in Vietnam and left Vietnam in 1970. And he was a soldier of distinction who won the Medal of Valor. He won a Purple Heart. He won several other commendations. He, he suffered from and dealt with PTSD and various traumas. Uh, And in 1979, he and his wife went and saw The Deer Hunter. And like many veterans, I've heard this from friends of mine whose whose fathers were Vietnam vets. Uh, I think it's fair to say that of all these films, this is the film that had, you know, if your dad was a veteran, he found other veterans in the movie theater in 1979, and they just kind of stood around in the aisle after it was over, and they talked. You know, that happened more from The Deer Hunter than it did on any of these other Vietnam films. And it's because Chimino and his cast and his crew uh, were able to get at something fundamental and essential in a certain way that was very triggering for people. I mean, Jan Scruggs had some flashbacks the night he saw the film. He had a sleepless night. He went home. He got drunk. It was a tough, triggering event for him. But he woke up the next morning and uh, he thought... Uh, I've got to do something. I've got to create a monument to the people who lost their lives. And he started to raise money. And three years later, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, designed by Maya Lin, was dedicated. And 
and has the names of 58,318 people, casualties of war in Vietnam, inscribed on it. And that's all as a result of Jan, Str- Jan Scruggs seeing Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter in the cinema one night in 1979. Hello. Steve, it's me, Mike. Michael? Michael? Hey. 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 How's things? I'm okay. Never mind me. How are you? Great. Great. <laughs> hey, what hey, what's that noise? What? Oh, wheelchairs. What? <laughs> hey Stevie, when are you getting out? Oh, uh, I'm gonna stay here a while, Mike. What for? The place is great. Huh? It's like a resort. No. I mean, they got basketball, bowling. What? Princess Grace came to see us the other day. <laughs> Michael. Hey, hey. Hey. Michael. Steve? Stevie. Yeah, I gotta go, Mike. I gotta go. Curfew, man. Stevie! Steve! The performances, De Niro, Streep, Walken, John Savage, uh, George Zunza, John Cazal. Think of those. I mean, I've just given you four, five, six names and you can remember indelible moments of acting that are so beyond what you normally get in a film because of the environment that Chimino was able to create. Um, and that's something these other films don't have. You know, the, the brilliance of having John Cazale, who we're so used to being frail and broken and lovable, as Connie says in The Godfather 2, you know, he's so lost without you. You know, you feel for Fredo so deeply. And John Cazal such an amazing actor that he brought that character to life in such a three-dimensional glory. Here, I love that Cazal is kind of the, his character, Stash, is kind of the jerk. He's the one who doesn't see the big picture, as Cazal says in uh, this book, One Shot, The Making of Deer Hunter. And that's so cool to me, you know, that he and the filmmakers resisted the, the temptation to make this John Cazal lovable puppy character. You know, they didn't do that. He's kind of a dick. He's a jerk. He's an irritant. He doesn't get it. And that's such a, a brave and great use of him. And tragically, you know, it's his last film performance. He would die six months after they stopped filming the film. But he's just one incredible performance performance in a film filled with them. De Niro, ah, man, watching this, it's like, you can be reminded all over again how insanely brilliant De Niro is. And in many ways, this has just got to be up there with his very best performances throughout his entire career. You know, Mike Vronsky is brought to life in such a visceral and real way. His control, his tightness, um, it's such an interesting portrayal, you know? He's not 
per se likable before the war even. He's a, he's a tight ass. All right, you guys, whoever took my boots, I want them back. I got a boot for you, Stan. Yeah. Right up your ass. <laughs> hey, Mike. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. No? What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Some fucking friend. You're some fucking friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your goddamn head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Every time he comes up, he's got no knife, he's got no jacket, he's got no pants, he's got no boots. Oh, he's got that stupid gun he carries around like John Wayne. That ain't gonna help you. Oh, what the hell, Mike? Give him the boots. No way. I ain't giving him no boots. No more. No more. That's it. You're a fucking bastard. You know that? Huh? Stanley, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. This is this. You know, the, the reluctance to give the boots to Stosh, like... He's just such a difficult, tight-ass guy, yet that's going to be exactly why he survives. That's going to be why he's able to save the other guys in the war who are weaker than him. And John Savage, I mean, a brilliant use of John Savage, the way he is so uh, sensitive and, and broken in the, the veterans' hospital, the way those scenes are filmed, there's such a delicacy and a poignancy, the way Chimino somehow knew to handle this. And a lot of it is, you know, similarly kind of sponge-worthy. You have guys on films that are technical advisors that were captive in Vietnam who went through these things. And if you take that role on, you know, you're going to have your life squeezed from you and put on screen. And I think that the, the mark of the filmmaker in many ways is the ability to hear stories or just nuance from a technical advisor or someone like that and figure out how to put that on screen. And, and that moment somehow takes on a greater resonance uh, because of the skill of the actor, because of the skill of the filmmaker, and because of the lived-in experience that, that we're looking at. And a lot of this stuff that's in the Deer Hunter from the war section comes from the experiences, not the roulette part. Um, that was a construct which bothered a lot of people at the time. It doesn't really tend to bother as many people now, but a lot of people were bothered by that at the time because they said, that didn't really happen. So if it didn't really happen, why is it in this Vietnam War film? Well, it's obviously, um, it's a construct. It's meant to indicate something. And I think it does indicate that pretty damn well. Uh, Chris Walken, you know, who won the Academy Award out of all these actors. <laughs> I say, Mike Stevens getting married in a couple hours. I don't know what the hell we're even doing. We're talking about hunting the last time before the army. The whole thing, it's crazy. Now, I'll tell you one thing. If I found out my life had to end up in the mountains, it'd be all right. But it has to be in your mind. What? One shot? Two is pussy. I don't think about one shot that much anymore, Mike. You have to think about one shot. One shot is what it's all about. Deer has to be taken with one shot. I try to tell people that. They don't listen. You ever think about getting in? Yeah. I don't know. 
I guess. I'm thinking about the deer. Going on. I like the trees, you know? I like the way that the trees are on the mountains, all different. The way the trees are. Sound like some asshole, huh? I tell you, Nick, you're the only guy I go hunting with, you know? I like a guy with quick moves of speed. I ain't gonna hunt with no assholes. Well, who's an asshole? Who's an asshole? Who do you think's an asshole? They're all a bunch of assholes. I mean, I love them. They're great guys, but, you know, without you, I hunt alone. Seriously, that's what I do. But you're a fucking nut. You know that, Mike? You're a maniac. Control freak. I just don't like no surprises. Incredible. The scene where he's crying on the windowsill in the hospital. Unbelievable. You know, his sensitivity, his humanity, his difference from Mike, his roommate. You know, two sides of this coin. He's the one who, who's with Meryl Streep. But so brilliantly, Streep, Chimino, De Niro, and Walken portray her attraction to Mike and their attraction to each other. And this small town feel of like, maybe she ended up with the wrong one, you know? And his, it's just so brilliantly done. It's so brilliantly staged. It's insane that this is the second film that Chimino ever made. And it's, it's so magnificent that it's amazing. It's not amazing that he never was able to do it again, because I just think the care and attention to put into something like this, he would do it again with, with Heaven's Gate, but it wasn't in service of something as meaningful as this, and it wasn't in service of something as grounded as this. And so Heaven's Gate has equally impressive filmmaking, but it just doesn't have what the deer hunter has, which is a heart of humanity. On and on and on, you know, every character in the film. The scenes in Vietnam are still incredibly impressive and difficult to watch. And it's really John Savage, I think, and 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 Walken, whose sensitivity is deployed so clinically, perfectly to tug our heartstrings. And these are these are actorly abilities that are brought out in service of the desire to show us the horror of war. So Kurt says the horror, the horror. Well, for my money, I'd rather see and experience the horror the way I do from John Savage whose portrayal of fear and terror is so real as to be almost impossible to watch. But in being almost impossible to watch, it breaks your heart. It gets into your head. It gets into your heart in a way that Kurtz never does. Or really that no one in Apocalypse Now does in the way that no one in Full Metal Jacket does. And so if that's what you know a movie is supposed to do is to get in and make you think and make you feel, well, those scenes... And the aftermath scenes make you think and feel. And, and that's what it's about, right? That's what the medium is for. So to me, it's not a contest. Uh, the Deer Hunter is the greatest film ever made about the Vietnam War. And I can't imagine something ever having so many actors at both the beginning of their powers and also in some ways at the height of their powers. Because there's an innocence and an openness that I don't think these actors can sustain, right? You get changed through experience. You get changed through exposure of different types of filmmaking styles. But in this one instance, they were all brought together. They were super close. And De Niro was their leader. 
Uh, another thing I'll say is I was so impressed reading a lot of source material about these movies. You know, De Niro, so much more than an actor uh, in this era and probably all through his career, you know, he's really responsible for so much of the casting of The Deer Hunter. He's responsible for so much of the tone setting on set. Uh, you know, through him, casting directors are finding actors like uh, John Savage, Chris Walken, you know, Meryl Streep, John Cazale. Like, he's bringing these people in and or vouching for them at, at key and important times. He's able to kind of play this different role, even though he's not a producer on the movie. But he really functioned like a de facto producer before, during, and after. And he was super brilliant at, at maintaining his relationship with a mercurial person like Chimino, uh, who granted knew he needed De Niro, but they played the game really well with each other and it worked to their mutual benefit. But I also came across an anecdote in preparing uh, in reading Stephen Bach's book, uh, Final Cut, which is about the making of uh, Heaven's Gate. And you know they were also at the time in pre-production on uh, Raging Bull with Marty Scorsese and De Niro. And there's a really great anecdote in the book where, you know, they bring in this screenplay for Raging Bull, which has gone through a few iterations. And the executives are like, it's just this guy at the center of your movie, Jake LaMotta. Like, why do we care about him? He's just this monster. He's just this horrible person. And he commits atrocious acts of violence against the people that love him. Like, it's just such a slog. Like, there was no heart there. There was no, there was no ability to get at the human aspect. And, and Stephen Bach says that the next thing that happened was, you know, De Niro and Martin Scorsese went away to St. Martin or somewhere for two weeks. And the next thing he knew, he got a script. And everything about the script was the same in terms of the credited writers previously. I think it was Schrader or Scorsese. Uh, but the script that Stephen Bach talks about looking at had RDN written in pencil uh, on the top corner or the bottom corner. And it was clear to him in reading this version of the script that it was De Niro who had gone through and figured out how to contribute the missing part of Jake LaMotta that allowed the studio to understand what the movie could become. And these are not things that De Niro was credited for. It's hard to give credit for a moment like happened on the Thailand set of The Deer Hunter where the local production representative had set up two lines for, for dinner. One line was for the American actors, and the other line was for the Thai locals. And De Niro shows up and goes, what is this? And he said, well, that's the line for, you know, us. That's the line for them. De Niro's like, no, shut that down. We're all here together. There's one line. And because he's De Niro, he could do that. And because he's De Niro, they did that. And that's not that, like, Chimino wanted that set up. That's just something a local producer had set up, and De Niro sees that and intuitively understands, that's wrong. We're not doing that. And, and that goes beyond his role as an actor. And yet as an actor, my God, in The Deer Hunter, he's just phenomenal. So to me, I could watch The Deer Hunter a hundred times. You're going to notice something new every single time. It's a film of uncompromising power and beauty. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. Uh, it contains multitudes. And for me, that's where I come out. I'm curious to know where you come out. Tell me your your thoughts, your feelings, the places where you think I'm getting it completely wrong and being unfair, because I'm sure there are some. And I will catch you next time on the Full Casting Crew Podcast. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Wow.